0: Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super excited here. You know, we have an amazing guest today. You know, it's incredible the 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 story here because it's not about going from consulting to really building, you know, more like software and something that scales on the hyper growth side of things. Uh and and I think that, you know, in many cases, you know, I, I see massive companies that are built as a result of really understanding your customer and then really building something that really scales around that. But We're going to be learning everything, you know, about how he did it and also about the story, you know, from the early days to where they are today, which is right now a rocket ship. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jacob Freund. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So originally born in Berlin. Ich bin ein Berliner. So uh, tell us about your upbringings growing up there.
1: Uh, yeah are true actually born and raised in berlin so um and that happened in the late seventies. so I grew up on the western part of Berlin before the wall came down um had a happy child over here um and then started my studies um in the um early 2000s in Bavaria so when we started Camunda as a company in berlin um in two thousand eight, we had no idea that it would turn into such a tech startup eventually. It's really a coincidence that we that we started here
0: hundred percent and we'll we'll talk about that just in in a little bit. But in your case, I mean basically you moved you moved you moved just a tiny bit, you know, there in Germany. You did business IT in university. Uh but, but what what really got you into the whole, you know, computer world in first place?
1: Well, that's a great question, actually. It's so I that was back when I was, I think, nine years old. Um, so in the mid eighties, my dad had a computer and I wanted to play computer games. Um and he said, Yeah, well, um, Jacob, I'm not gonna you any games on my PC XT, but I can tell you how to code, how to program. And I was like, "Was that interesting?" I was nine years old, right? So, um and you taught me how to code in Turbo Pascal. And he used to be a teacher for accounting, and he taught me to code a um, program to calculate interest rates, which was like for nine years old, not exactly the most exciting thing to do. Um, but then I read the manual of Turbo Pascal, and I figured that you could actually manipulate strings there as well. And I learned a tutorial about how to. Program a hangman game, so I programmed that, so that you could actually like put my own game basically. Played that for a while, and then I put all of that to diskettes and printed labels which said uh, "hangman" five deutschmark and I tried to sell that like as a nine years old to my friends and family, and nobody would ever buy it. Um, but that was my first like experience with um, building and selling software actually. That's amazing.
0: And uh, obviously, in your case, after university, you know, you started you know being a project manager, a consultant, and, you know, all things, you know, led to you, you know, working at this company where eventually you met your co-founder. So, so how was that relationship? Because that definitely transformed it to you guys one day, you know, starting to brainstorm, you know, like maybe like bringing a potential solution to the world, but, but how did you guys really, you know, like meet and how was that connection where you felt that there was something, you know, perhaps that you guys could do together?
1: Yeah, that happened back in 2007. So the story was that um I finished my studies in 2005 started as an employee at a company here in Berlin as as you said as a project manager basically for like integrating their their web platform with banks but I was always like ever since I met the topic in my in my studies I was super interested in business process management so it's like you know this whole thing about how to design manage automate a business process to make an organization more efficient and more effective I just found that interesting like it's like coding your organization and and pretty cool actually so I found that um fascinating, um didn't find a job in that space like right away. So I started as that program manager, but um in like like in in, in during the nights over weekends, etc. after work, I put up my own website about the topic. So BPM Guide DE, that was the name basically. And um that website attracted a certain audience, like consultants, professionals in BPM. Certain forum was there, a community, um, and also my to be a co-founder, basically. Um um, who was already a freelancer um, in the Java space for, for workflow automation, stumbled upon that, that site. So he and I basically met online in that forum, then met at a conference. We had a few drinks. We really like had a, had a good connection. And when I said, hey, Bernd, that's his name, in 2007, I'd like to start my own business. And he said, well, I have my own business. Why don't we team up and focus on, on BPM together and, and build a consulting business? Um, I was, yeah, I'll do that. That's great.
0: That's amazing. So then, so then tell us about, you know, really getting started with the consulting business, you know, giving your notice, then here you are, you guys, you know, like building a consulting practice. So so what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so that was like, as I said, in 2007, I was working, I, I actually quit my job at the project manager before that, and then worked for a year at a BPM software vendor already as a solution architect. So again, some frontline experience as an employee in in that market. Um, so that was already helpful. And I gave notice. Um, and and left that company and was a bit like it was exciting, but I was you know I was in my late twenties, so I had a girlfriend that turned out to be my wife later. Um, but I didn't have any kids yet or anything, so so I wasn't like too scared um, of the whole thing. And uh, well, Beth and I sat down, we brainstormed, and we had that idea about hey, there's this new standard coming up called BPMN um, about process modeling. It's new, people don't know it yet. Why don't we give training to teach people how to like design and and, and draw their processes in that standard? Um, And why don't we actually write a book about the whole thing? And he had connections to a publisher, and they said, yeah, that might be interesting. So we wrote that book about BPMN, and it became a pretty big success in that specific domain. So um, that helped us to build a reputation, a brand, um, as experts for that BPMN process modeling thing, and also then brought us leads and and business as consultants and trainers in the first couple of years.
0: So tell us about building up this uh, consulting practice. You know, with your co-founder.
1: It's part of a, it's it's sort of a hand in neck problem to be honest. Because in the beginning you have to be slightly dishonest. Because I mean you just, you position yourself as as experts that have like lots of experience. So in our case, lots of experience about. Um, how to introduce BPM and BPMN in your organization and I mean the reality was that we had pretty limited experience so we had to be like a bit exaggerating about um, that we have seen so many things already and that's the marketing part of it if you will in the beginning Um, and then you get like your first couple of um, of customers how do you get them well personal networks and I mentioned that online website right so um, the people that we were selling our and agency um, services to were visitors on their website. So we, we had those first connections. And um, and then we had those, let's say half dozen engagements with a bit of coaching, training, actually using um, the BPMN standard, uh, mapping business processes. As soon as you have that, you have a flywheel going. You can draw from those like half dozen um, engagements. You have a couple of, of um, references that you can leverage. Um, and from that, it's really just like, you know, building upon what you have um, done to kickstart the business.
0: But obviously it's a different uh, type of approach because now, you know, you, you you have the hyper growth going, which is, you know, you add more money to get the wheel to turn faster. But when you have the consulting, it's kind of like, you need to add more people not to have the the wheel turn faster. So how did you guys, you know, really, you know, manage with that? And also for the people that are, that are listening too, like what, what, what were those kind of clients, really, and, and, and the, the typical client, and what was the typical job that you guys would consult on?
1: Yeah, it was actually bigger organizations right from the start. So it wasn't SMBs. Um, it was really like in Germany, for example, um, there are many insurance companies um, that have around between 1,000 and 10,000 employees. There are like 40 or 50 of those in the German-speaking area. And in all those insurance companies um, really need to reinvent themselves, um, like automate um, their customer experiences, and really think about their processes. Now more than ever, but even like 13 years ago, that was a big topic already. So um, in that sense, um, insurances, banks, telcos, the traditional bigger enterprises were our clients right from the start, which I believe actually was very helpful then later, when we turned all of that into a software business. But that came later, as you, as you already said, in the first five years, we had this um, not really scalable business model of consulting, just building up the brand, um, pay, like, like, like sending a bill at the end of the month, being profitable, not needing outside funding or venture capital, et cetera, just doing our thing, basically, enjoying the independence, not having a boss to report to. All of that was actually, to be honest, driving force in the early days. And, um, but we always were on the lookout for, let's find something that scales better than consulting. Um, and typically that is software. So right from day one, we thought about, hey, couldn't we actually provide some sort of software in our space? And we did actually one or two um, attempts that failed in the beginning. So we had that idea about, hey, let's put that process automation software that we bought from somewhere else um, into the cloud so that people could actually automate their processes as a service, which was like a totally new thing back then. And we tried that out and it failed completely. So we had those like one or two bigger failures, but we kept going on the consulting side that fueled our our business basically until, you know, with the third attempt, we actually hit a nerve um, then in 2013.
0: And typically when you were trying this, and, you know, this this ended up leading to to Kamunda, you know, which is your, your baby, but basically when you were trying all these different, you know, like ideas and initiatives, was that related to your consulting business in a way that you were trying to automate what you were already doing on the consulting or was this like, like? Moonshot ideas that had nothing to do, and you were just trying to figure out if it would stick or not.
1: No, no, I was totally related. So um, our consulting business was um, about about business processes and and how to like model them, design them, have a flowchart that you can discuss, and even automate them um, by um, by using existing automation technologies. There were products from IBM, from Oracle, etc. So we knew those products quite well, um, and as consultants, we were able to implement your process using those products. So, the ideas we had were basically about alternatives to those products. So, in that sense, yes, it was very closely related, and the first two attempts um, just didn't, yeah, if you will, succeed or stick, and the third one then did. So, it was really iterating on the idea of how to provide better um, process automation technology that was related to our consulting space.
0: So then, I mean, you had an advantage because you had direct access and interaction with your, you know, with those potential customers. So what what do you think, you know, like, what's that process, you know, from putting something out there, seeing if it would stick or not, what would define that stickiness? And then how did that, you know, ended up uh, being Camunda, you know, where you said, okay, I think this one has legs.
1: Yeah. Yeah I think in our specific case um you always need to like think about the type of business that that we have so um um bigger enterprise customers so not consumers not small companies not even startups necessarily bigger enterprises um, with certain budgets but also certain like expectations um and then the matter of um, of business processes and process automation So what we basically did was, the one that then also worked out for us, um, we took an open-source project for process automation that that we knew very well. It wasn't ours, but we knew it very well. And we said, hey, dear customer, we can provide annual support for that open-source automation technology. Um, And we put a price tag on that, like, I don't know, like 12,000 euros or so per year, relatively low, very low from today's standpoint. Um, And we said, hey, we can provide support. That was the very first thing, like a very seamless, you know, transition from consulting to um, an annual subscription um, that, that means basically just supporting it. But then we said on top of that, hey, we also provided this amazing additional tool, you know, that sits on top of the open source thing that gives you certain like real-time insights into what's going on, like for operations. And that comes with an annual extra fee of like 20K or whatever. So we bundle all of that together. Um, into an initial offering of um, 20, 30, 40K per year list price. We did that in 2012, actually. And we offered that to our consulting customers who had the exact same problem that we were solving with the the product. And we said, we gave ourselves like, I think, 12 months and said, hey, if we can sign between 10 and 20 enterprises um, on a price tier between 10 and 30K per year, we might have something going. Like, very like few deals, relatively big deals, but few deals. And if there's a sufficient pattern that emerges across that um, small sample size, you can extrapolate. If 10 insurances buy that, then Humboldt will buy that as well.
0: And also, what was the timeline for that? Because, I mean, it's uh, not the same as to say, hey, let's get these guys in in three or six months versus, hey, let's say uh, keep at it for like 10, 12 years until we're able to to secure you know, some people here.
1: Yeah, yeah, you need to, you, yeah, that's that's actually um, an important thing that I, that's a hard lesson I had to learn in the beginning. So the first two attempts, we had to understand at a certain point that this wasn't flying. And and it's hard because you want to, like, you know, be, be perseverant enough. You don't want to give up too quickly. But then again, when you're, like, beating a dead horse, you should get off that horse too. So how do you yeah. find that moment? And by, by giving yourself a clear time box. And I believe 12 months is um, not always, like, sufficient. Um, it might sometimes even too long already. But for a product like ours, like an enterprise software product that you need to get into an enterprise organization that sometimes takes like 12 months to even approve a purchase <laughs> in the first place with all the bureaucracy and the red tape, um, 12 months is, I believe, a pretty decent, recommendable timeline.
0: Nice. So then in this case, Kamunda ended up being you know, sticky enough for you guys to really go at it. And here we are with Kamunda today. So for the people that are listening and watching, For them to get it what ended up being the business model of camunda how do you guys make money
1: yeah so um and yes in 2012 like uh, after six months already we, we basically hit the milestone that we had set for ourselves for 12 months so like and then and towards end of 2012 we said okay this is it for us we go all in and going all in means basically transitioning in our case meant transitioning from consulting to software business and that was like with only 15 people still a pretty big challenge, like, you know, we hired full-time engineers, we didn't do so much consulting anymore, so you need to retrain your staff, some even left because I said I want to be a consultant, but now product is becoming like the big thing here, that sort of stuff. Um, then we started um, with support for open source, then um, added more and more extra features, um, and we started our own open source project then in 2013, like, we really have it under control. And um, that's also today's um, business model. So um, our product, the like, Camona Platform, as it's called today, is used in its open source version for free by many different organizations. For example, um, NASA uses it to process data sent back from Perseverance, like the pictures and stuff from us um, are processed on our product, on the open source version, which is pretty cool. So we have like a pretty big community of open source users, but we also have those... Um, more conservative, bigger enterprises, telecom insurance banks um, that prefer um, paying for the commercial version that doesn't just come with support anymore, but actually extensive additional features on top of the open source core. So it's an open core business model. you find that as well with Elastic um, um, or with Confluent um, um, or, or many others.
0: And in your guys' case, how much capital have you guys raised to date?
1: So we have raised um, 25 million in the USA and 80 million um, euro. All of that in Series B. So Series so B was like in dollar close to 100 million. 100 million dollars. Okay,
0: and that's a I mean that's a lot of zeros for being in Europe, Jacob. So um, you know when you hear those kinds of amounts in the US, you know that's a that's normal. But you know in Europe, you know it's a it's a big deal to raise that kind of money because typically once you're past the Series A, then you need to figure it out. You need to maybe like think about bringing investors from the U.S., which is where they have the the biggest um, you know pools of of cash to deploy. But but how did you guys go about really ramping up and and also you know racing and and transitioning from that early stage of a Series A round to a Series B? Because I mean, you you guys have gotten you know a lot of great European you know funds to to come in and invest.
1: Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, and Series A and B is also a bit misleading, I believe, in our case, um, because um, we raised the Series A in 2018, so like after 10 years. (laughs) So we were 10 years without any outside funding at all, profitable, and still growing to uh, more than 10 million euro ARR. And at that stage, we raised the Series A. So um, that is, of course, a bit uncommon. Um, and and that's also how it happened, by the way. Um, and the European um, ecosystem of of tech startups becoming very attractive also for for U.S. investors. So there are traditional players over here that have established themselves very well already, like Highland Europe um the, the people we brought in for the USA. And um, but there's also um, like even the West Coast MVCs, like Sequoia and, and others that are now really hunting in Europe. So um, nowadays it's much easier to raise substantial capital than it was like. Than five years ago or whatever in Europe. But in both cases with that series A and also the series B that then happened um, two and a half years later, like this year in early 21, in both cases, um, it was, if you will, reactive. So we were actually hunted by VCs. They reached out to us in a cold fashion. We never pitched to a VC. We really just had conversations with those that were interested already. We had a short list of interested VCs um, um, and then picked the one that we that resonated best with us. So, Holland Europe for the A and insight um, for for B.
0: That's interesting because in many instances, you know, like those people that are like cold emailing, you know, from VCs, they're trying to survey the market. You know, probably they formed an investment thesis around investing in a company like yours, and maybe they're talking to all your competitors too. So, how do you how do you really find that uh, you know that balance or that medium? Or that kind of like confidence to be able to engage without, you know, really wanting to educate them much, you know, so that they don't go to a competitor when they are like really in survey- surveillance, you know, type of mode.
1: Yeah, I know that. Um, I, I get that, that concern, but I'm not sure if I have like the best possible advice here. I have to admit that us as a company, we believe in transparency and, and being yeah. straightforward, yeah. honest and candid. And um, about pretty much everything that we do. So we don't, for example, over promise. We don't oversell, no, not to customers, not to potential employees, not even to VCs. So, um, and then we also believe that if you have like, you know, and strategy is one thing, uh, but execution is what really matters. You need to be able to execute um, on, on your strategy. And like, I was never concerned about discussing our market, our business and everything with those um, um, potential investors. And um, because I knew that what will set us apart and determine our success is how well we will be able to execute um, in order to capitalize on the opportunity. And here, I believe we are in a pretty unique position because of our history. So um, um, we don't even like, there's not a single um, company I would um, define today as a straight competitor for us. Um, and I believe that is um, because of that, of that um, unique situation that we're in. So maybe it's also a bit special. But I believe, to come back to your question. Don't be too afraid. Don't be afraid of like giving away too much information. Like focus on, on 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 your strengths, on your customers, the market, and and be fast and executing, uh, and that all that matters.
0: And and your position also was very unique, as you were alluding to, because on the Series A, I mean, you guys were like already making it happen. So, so what what caused you to to really say, you know what, maybe we because as the saying goes, you don't know what you don't know. So, I mean, when you are like making that kind of money already, it's like you don't really need it to survive. You've been already 10 years, you know, uh, pushing this thing. So what was that event that triggered you guys to say, you know, maybe, you know, it makes sense to now get some outsider capital and, and wrap this up?
1: Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a single event. It was a number of events um, that also infor- like I was getting educated over time. So, for example, I spent um, three months um, in San Francisco back in 2014 already. Um, um, with a mentorship from the German Ministry of Economics um, for German companies that want to expand to the US market, which we did already. So that's maybe also um, worth mentioning. Um, and We're growing in the US the fastest actually customer base-wise. And there I got in touch with um, the whole ecosystem of tech startups that I didn't know about anything actually um, until then. And then I understood the mentality behind it, the, the idea of like fast iteration um, and the agility Um, And also the excitement that comes um, once you figure out, hey, this actually has like a big potential. And it's not really like for most founders, I believe it's not really about the money. I mean, getting rich is a welcome side effect, but it's about having an impact, like really building something that has a big impact. And that is a huge reward. Um, And like building and selling software, like these two things, building it, selling it, it's just super exciting. So doing that not just, to you know, um, with, let's say, 20 people, but with, like, potentially 2,000 people, you can just have a much bigger impact. It's like, wow, you can really, um, like, um, realize um, big and amazing ideas. And that was, like, th- this dawned on me um, and, and my my co-founder and my leadership team after a So, in 2018, the time was just right. We were already in conversation with Highland Europe. They approached us, like, um, 2017 already. They made a great impression, super competent, super nice. I'm um, not pushy, not aggressive, not arrogant. You know what you sometimes see with VCs, which really puts me off. They were already uh, acquitting themselves as potential partners. And we were like, okay, we don't need the money. We are profitable. However, if we want to really like, do all the things we want to do, we need to spend money faster, then we will grow the revenue in the next few years. So let's secure funding while we don't need it um, instead of start looking for it when we do need it. And, and that's how the series came about."
0: Nice. So so for the people that are listening now, Jacob, to really get an idea of the size of Camunda, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else?
1: Yeah. So we're not disclosing um, revenue numbers, but um, I mean, the Series B speaks to like nice growth rates that we have seen in the past three years as well. Yeah. Employees-wise, we are north of 300 right now. Um, so in that sense, also nice growth rate. And um, we have, like we are a remote first organization nowadays, so um, we're not headquartered anyway or anywhere, but we do have um, like um, official formal presences in um, Germany and uh, four places in the U.S., um, in London, Singapore and Sydney. Uh, Australia.
0: Nice. So when you're growing so fast, I'm sure that you've experienced cultural friction too. So tell us about this. What, what have you learned about cultural friction and how do you deal with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, like culture and leadership, I would say, besides building selling software is um, um, the other most exciting part of building building such a company. Like um, I'm really feeling how I'm growing myself also as a CEO and growth is painful sometimes. So, um, of course, you're making experiences that are also nerve wracking and frustrating. So, for example, when when employees become um, like uh, dissatisfied or um, uh, uh, like frustrated um, about developments, let's say, for example. Um, even cultural fiction between geographies, like you know the stereotypes, Americans, Germans, for example. We originated in Germany, so we have many people from Germany in our staff. We're growing very fast in the U.S., so we have many Americans in our staff now as well. And then you sometimes have those stereotypical and or even real differences between the local cultures. So um, the way an American often appears in a meeting, the way a German often appears in a meeting, they can really um, put each other off. Um, so you'll need to navigate that um, and, and I think one for example one mistake I would say um, that, that I have made was like trying to neglect that to say like even to deny that there are those differences like you know this whole thing about no 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 let's not talk about um, cultural differences when it comes to nationalities um, and we are like one happy family and it's the culture Um so not really paying sufficient attention to those existing um cultural differences. Um, I then read a book um, by Erin Meyer, which I can highly recommend. Um, It's really, really great, and it speaks about um, the different uh, cultures in different countries and how they can often lead to misunderstanding and how you can navigate that. And we actually hired her for a workshop with the entire team like remotely via Zoom um, and really made all of us aware that those differences do exist. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that one approach is better than the other. It just means they're different. And we need to um, be aware of that and then Find um, consensus on how we want to communicate in certain ways. Um, so that's, for example, one painful learning that that we have made the past few years.
0: And and let me ask you this: as we're thinking about growth, as we're thinking about the future, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Kamunda is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Well, there's no many you think that could be better in this world, but let's...
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so much crap that is going on. <laughs> but when it comes to Kamunda uh, as a business, uh, and maybe even our contribution, if you will. Um, so, so we have this idea that you can automate any process anywhere using our technology. And, and we're serious about that. I mentioned the NASA example. That's pretty, pretty exciting and unique and because we that Kamunda is the very universal um orchestration layer it's called like you know you can put it on top of everything machines um and software and people and it orchestrates the process from from start to end and and that is also happening even with like actual robots etc are being orchestrated by Kamunda so um but most people have never heard of us so it's like uh, we have this immense potential and um and 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 many people haven't heard of Kamunda yet i think um hopefully 5 years from now Camunda will be a very omnipresent technology for making automation happen. Like What can be automated should be automated so that people can actually focus on more interesting stuff. Um, So that's one element here. And to come back to what I just said, we do have, for example, a Camunda program for for the common good. So we give away our software for free um, for courses that we believe in. Let it be about climate change, let it be about human rights. So we have um, organizations that... um, that we help and that normally wouldn't get access to that sort of technology because it's very expensive. Like nowadays, our annual fees like are sometimes around millions. So um, um, often NGOs wouldn't be able to afford that. And um, but we could have a big, big impact um, um, with automation on many things that that should be improved in our world. So um, like seeing that actually happening um, five years from now, again at scale, all around us, would be also um, just amazing.
0: So imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, I bring you back, you know, perhaps to those years where Jacob was a consultant, a project manager, where you had met your co-founder, where you guys were thinking about, you know, what a world would look like where you would bring a company into it. And imagine, you know, that younger self, that younger Jacob actually listened because we know that our younger selves, you know, probably they wouldn't listen that much. But let's say that younger Jacob actually, you know, was willing to listen in. And you were able to give that younger Jacob one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Figure out sooner and faster how you can find and enable um, and lead people that um, can do all the things that um, you would often jump at doing yourself because you think you can do them so much faster and better. (laughs) So it's the arrogance. (laughs) <laughs> In that yeah. Sense. Yeah. Um leadership is a is an art, um, and once you've mastered that, you can make things happen that you could never ever make happen by yourself. And that's a, that's amazing.
0: I love it. And Jacob, you were alluding to it uh, earlier from you know this book with Eric Meyer, you know around culture. I'm wondering, you know, like uh, now, you know, if I was to ask you, what is one book, you know, besides that one that that you wish you would have read sooner that maybe had a big impact on you? Which which book would you say? That's it.
1: Also so many, but I think, um, Ben Horowitz, um, um, the hard thing about hard things. Um, I think that's, that's a cool. classic, uh, that really, that really enlightened me. Yeah. I love that one.
0: I, especially when, when you're dealing with the, how you embrace the struggle, you no? Know? Because obviously, you know, everyone looks at the, you know, articles and the media outlets and they see how beautiful everything is, but it's not so beautiful getting there. You know, there's like really tough days. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, um. Uh, yeah. So, Jacob, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with all of us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was was uh, really exciting. My pleasure. And by the way, remember the name of the book now. I think it's Cultural Map. That's the name of the book that I can recommend.
0: Amazing. Cultural Map. There we go. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremates.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.